Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up for the law and the prophets. All right, that's the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Bohannon. All right, kids, thanks for being here, having the front row seat. You can go right on into your programming. All right, so sometimes you just need a little, uh, a little, some children here to lead uh, because they really do keep things simple. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, the golden rule, uh, it's something that we all have heard, we all know about, we all wonder, uh, how do we do this in our lives? Um, and so... Um, uh, you might be thinking, well, it's one verse today. Great. That means it's going to be quick. I can get to, you know, pancake pantry early. And, uh, you know, wh while this is one verse, the more I studied, the more I looked into it, the more uh, powerful it was to me. And so I hope, well, I hope to get you out a little early. I uh, also hope to, to dig in uh, with this passage and you today. And so um, this is part of Matthew seven twelve. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount which is a series that we've been covering for the last several months. And it's really Jesus teaching us all uh, what kingdom life looks like for uh, being a disciple of Christ. And uh, he really shows us the presence and the power of God in the world and really gives us an ethic to live by in it. And so going back a little bit, chapter 6, uh, he teaches us a lot about how we are to have our individual lives with God, uh, how to pray and things like that. In chapter 7... He's uh, unwinding it a little bit more to say, how do we act with one another? How do we interrelate, have interpersonal relations with others, um, and still love the Lord? Uh, breaking it down even further in chapter one, the last several weeks, we talked about not judging others. Uh, don't pull um, the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in yours. We also talked about the pearl of the gospel and how beautiful and how valuable that message is. And then last week, Pastor Russ came and visited you all and, and talked about asking, seeking, and knocking, how we are uh, disciples uh, and we are to persist in prayer, to actually ask our Father for what we need because he's a good, good Father and he knows what we need and will provide uh, for our needs. And so today, we get to talk about the golden rule. Uh, whatever you wish others to do to you, do to them. Now, why is it called the golden rule? Have you ever thought about that? What's the purpose of it being golden? Well, I did some research and looked, and there was an emperor in the third century named Severus, and he was taught by some Jews or Christians uh, the golden rule, and he loved it so much, he put it up on his palace walls in, uh, imprinted in gold letters. In fact, he loved it so much, he also put it on the public um, buildings in the city, and then he put it on his own uh, private chamber. It was a model that he took and said, this is how I want to live, and so he impressed it upon his subjects and, and um, his city. And so ever since then, it's been called the golden rule. And the beautiful thing about the golden rule is it's easily understood, right? And we saw, we had, I think, over 10 kids talk about the golden rule and, and what it was, and most of them uh, knew what it was. It's, it transcends cultures. It transcends even religions. There's a Harvard humanist uh, chaplain, Greg Epstein, who says the phrase, do unto others, is a concept not missed by any religion entirely. If we look at it uh, in um, ancient Egypt, as far as 2000 BC, there is an Egyptian goddess, Ma'at, that said, do to the doer to make him do. In uh, the Islam faith, the prophet Muhammad says, seek for mankind that of which you desire for yourself, that you may be a believer. Confucius says, 
what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. Even Taoism says a person who has no interest, has no interest of his own but takes the interest of the people instead as his own. So it's so common in all faiths that even in 1993, the Parliament of the World Religions proclaimed the golden rule as the common principle uh, for, for many of the religions and had over 142 religious leaders in the world sign the declaration in agreement. So this is such a popular world statement. Why is it not being lived out? If it is so commonplace, why don't we do it? Well, the fact of the matter is this statement is, is when it's left to itself, it's, it's actually pretty empty. A standard that we all agree upon, but it's not something we follow because there's no power behind it. There's really no obligation to follow unless you want something from someone. There's no obligation, especially if we disobey, if left to itself. We don't have to have Oh, uh, here's the other thing that Epstein goes on uh, further. He says, this phrase in all these religions, uh, the beautiful thing is that it doesn't even necessitate a God. This statement can be agreed upon by believers and non-believers alike. It's like a, it's like a, a, a very common statement, yet no one follows. It kind of reminds me of the speed limit. I was running a little late today, and I see the speed limit sign, and I'm looking at it and say, all right, I know the speed limit, do I go the speed limit or not? And it wasn't whether or not I knew the speed limit, because I, we all know the speed limit, it was whether or not I thought I would get uh, a ticket. And just self-confession there, it's, it's often that we, um, we need to have power behind a statement before we actually obey it. Um, so why don't we follow the golden rule? Well, there are plenty of reasons which we talked about. It's, it's also inconvenient. It, it calls us to look uh, at others' needs, not our own, which can be often difficult. Uh, um, and it's difficult if it's up to us because we don't always do the things we want to do. We're, we're sinful. Uh, the, there's a, something called the rule of reciprocity, which is very similar to the golden rule, and it says you do so you can get. And often we can take this golden rule and put it into that category, a golden rule without God. And while the golden rule without God uh, may be in line with some of the other uh, religious affiliations um, out of the 142 that I mentioned, Christianity is something that's different, right? While all faiths seem to have this inability and, and this desire to live the golden rule but don't, Christianity is, is distinctive from the others. And it, it, uh, there's something different about it, and that's when Jesus gives the golden rule, he doesn't merely give it as a rule, as a speed limit sign, right? He doesn't give it as a code of, only as a code of behavior, but he empowers us as children, as believers of God. And he calls us to treat others as we want to be treated because it's something that, as a believer, naturally flows from us. Albeit difficult and sinful in nature, yet it still comes through us. We desire to love others and treat others the way we want to be treated. Why? Because Christ gives us himself first. Right? It's, this is no longer the golden rule is without a God. It is with a very personal relationship with God. So here's the whole, the whole sermon right here in this one statement. Because we are first love, because we are first loved, we have the ability to love others. Okay? We are, because we are first loved, we have the ability to love others. Whereas other religions say, love first, show yourself worthy, and then you'll be loved. 
Christianity and Christ himself says that if you believe in him, you are already loved. It flips the paradigm. It flips the equation. God loves us first without condition, and out of that place of love, we are called to love others. So how do we do that? Right? That's the question of the day. How do we love others? Well, the three ways that I'll talk about today, my three main points are with a love supreme. We are to love and treat others with a love supreme, with a healthy self-love, and with an others-centered love. Love supreme, healthy self-love, others-centered love. So let's talk about that first one, a love supreme. And before we get into uh, this supreme love of God, let's talk about ways maybe our world says that we can receive love, Okay. A place that the world says we can receive love is in our performance. Uh, If we earn it through our work, we can earn it through our successful careers, our achievements, getting into a prestigious college, our uh, grade point average. Uh, For me, my um, thought was that I could earn God's love through my athletic performance. Or it could be another performance, through music. But the problem with that is that when we try to earn God's love, there's always more we should be earning. The more we accomplish, the more we need to reach a higher level to get the love that we think we can earn. We're not loved until I can prove myself that I'm valuable, that I'm lovely. Only when I'm lovely can I be loved. Or we look for it in in personal relationships. We date to be loved. We put a significant other high on a pedestal. We worship them and our relationship because we think that if we do that, we will receive the love that only God can give. We're habitual daters. We use people that we don't even really like just because we want to have someone care for us. Or we use them physically. We use sex as a way to feel physically loved where we can't seem to get enough to be loved relationally. All of these are what I like to call pickpocket love Right where I don't know if you've ever been uh, pickpocketed before. I remember I was in Italy once, and this little kid bumped up against me, and I thought, oh, that's, I don't know why he did that. And then I looked away and, and realized he was trying to reach into my pocket. It's the, the pickpocket love is when you, you bump someone, you love someone just enough so you can get what you want from them. Are we choosing to pickpocket love? Were we taking more than we're actually giving? All these loves our loves we do to receive love, but that's not the way Christ has made it. What's different about this supreme love of Christ? Well, let's get into the scripture. Let's look at at verse 12. Let's pull out your your Bibles, pull out your iPhones, whatever you need to do. Uh, It says this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, look at that first word. It's really easy to pass over. It's two letters. So, in the King James Version, uh, the translation says, therefore. And whenever you see a so or a therefore in Scripture, you've got to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? You get it? What is the therefore, therefore? Um, and, and the reason is, whatever, uh, whenever there's a so or a therefore, it's attaching to the previous statement. It's not a, a standalone statement. There's something beforehand that is purposeful. And so we're seeing that this is a connection. This, this statement, to love others, is actually a connection uh, to the previous statements. Now, Pastor Russ talked about this last week, that if you look back in verse 7, uh, we, are at, we are to ask God because 
he answers our prayers. I mean, this whole passage is about the love of a good, good father. Uh, he answers our prayers. Verses 8 through 10, he shows us that God loves us so much that he'll give us what we need. And verse 11, it shows us that he's a good, good father. Because if an earthly father can give uh, what should be given, how much more will our heavenly father give us the love that we need? And so the therefore, or the so, is there to remind us that everything flows out of the fact that we are loved by the creator of the universe. And that changes everything that comes after that word. So when we see so, we've got to see that. It changes how we respond in love. Our vertical relationship with God determines our ability to love others. You know, the vertical relationship, how we relate with God, is directly correlated with how we relate horizontally with other people. If we understand God's supreme love for us, we can't help but desire to treat others well. To treat others not under obligation, but of pure joy. There's a story um, I recently read on John Coltrane. Uh, he's a famous American jazz saxophonist. He played the alto sax, and he was very influential among musicians in his day. He played with Miles Davis. He played with Monk. And um, what was hard about his life is he struggled with heroin. He struggled with an addiction to alcohol and, and struggled with it for almost 20 years. And then one day, he had a religious experience. He realized that God loved and cared for him, and it changed everything. He started using music to love others. In 1964, he produced his best-selling album entitled A Love Supreme. And in the, on the notes of his work, and he, he uh, put it in, in his albums too, he says this, in 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening that has led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. Coltrane experienced God love, God's love, and it changed the way he loves others. It changed Im immediately. In fact, he wrote a poem in the last uh, part four of Love Supreme. He wrote a poem to God and played the music in line with each syllable of his poem. And it goes, uh, part, of this, part of his poem goes like this, I will do all I can to be worthy of you, O Lord. It all has to do with you. Thank you, God. God is beautiful. Blessed be his name, his way. It is so lovely. It is so gracious. He cleanses all. He is gracious and merciful. Thank you, God. Glory to God. God is alive. May I be acceptable in your sight. God breathes through us so completely, so gently we hardly feel it. Yet he is our everything. Thank you, God. Can you feel that? Can you feel that supreme love? Our Savior loves us the same way. And we can feel and experience that love. And when we do, it changes everything about the way we live, about the way we think, about the way we treat others. John Coltrane first experienced the love of his father, this vertical relationship, and it changed everything. It gave him an outlook for life. So let me ask you to ask yourself something personally, okay? Here's what I want you to ask yourself today. Why do I love and treat others the way I do? What is my motivation for loving and treating others? Am I loving to earn through performance? Am I loving to receive the feeling of love that I desire from God from other people? Am I a pickpocket lover? Am I giving love to receive more? 
Or do I love others because I have experienced the supreme love of God and it has changed my life with his mercy and grace forever? We know we are loved with the supreme love of God our Father. And when we experience his love first, it changes the way we love others. So if we are to love others with a supreme love, we are also to love others by having a healthy self-love. Now you may be thinking, wait, whoa, 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 okay, I got you with the supreme love there, Casey, but a healthy self-love? The whole statement itself in, in verse 12 is, uh, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. It's not about us, it's about them. Well, yes, and for someone to know how to love others by this statement, we must first know what we want and how we should be loved. So it then asks the question, how do we love ourselves? And we do that by knowing two things. First, understanding our purpose and understanding our need. That's how we have a healthy self-love. So first, understanding our purpose. We're created by God, right? You, you, in the Genesis account, the first book of the Bible, um, Genesis, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he said it was good. He created the sky, he said it was good. He created the dry lands and the sea, the plant life, and it was good. The stars, the heavenly body, and it was good. Life in the waters and the birds, it was good. Life on dry land, then he called it good. You see the rhythm? He creates something, and then he calls it good. But then he breaks this rhythm when he comes to when he makes man male and female. God makes uh, people in his own image and he puts them in charge of other things. He blesses them, gives them everything, plants, animals, and foods, and he says, behold, it was very good. Right? There's something different about this pattern, about humans. That we all have, there's, there's purpose in all things in this world, but there's something extra special. There's an extra special purpose with humans. See, God stopped everything, and he breathed life into us on that day of creation. Why? Because the, since the beginning of creation, we were meant to receive God's blessing. We were created for a purpose to receive God's love. And that's why we are extra special. That's why we are very good in God's sight, because we are made for that purpose. Our purpose is to receive his love. Without it, we have no purpose. We have no ability to care for others. We are dead. We are unable to be designed to do what we are called to do without that love. Uh, I have a, um, uh, my first car that I got when I was a teenager. I was 16. Uh, and I was driving back from a track meet with my mom, and I saw this car, and it was beautiful. So I bought it. It was a 1954 Chevy. Two-door, uh, black, white hard top, original leather seats, just rusted out, like completely dangerous. Um, but it was beautiful, and I knew that I wanted to have that car, so I bought it uh, and took it home. And I was so excited because the next day I was going to drive it to high school. I mean, what are the looks that you're going to get when you drive this big old, uh, you know, 1954 Chevy sedan to, to school? And so I go there in the morning bright and early, and I go to turn the key, and it doesn't start. Oh, shoot. So I open it up, and I think, oh, maybe it's just a dead battery. So I get the battery replaced, and later that week I go to start again, and it's not starting. And I couldn't figure out what it was. It was completely dead. It couldn't function, and it sat in the driveway for weeks until I eventually called my uncle. Uh, my uncle David was a, uh, a car mechanic for a race car driver. 
and he knew everything about cars. In fact, he would build cars literally from the ground up. And so I called him, and within a few minutes, all he did was switch one wire, and it started. I was like, Uncle David, how did you do that? And see, what he had done was uh, in a, this might bore you, this is what I had to learn as far as cars, but uh, we have uh, in our cars the things that recharge the battery, they're called alternators. Well, back then, this car was so old, they had something called a generator. And this generator was responsible for creating electricity to recharge the battery. And without it, the battery would start a few times, but then it wouldn't run. And so the previous uh, owner of the car sold it, sold the car for real cheap because he didn't understand the purpose of the generator. And so he didn't wire it properly. Without a generator, the car doesn't run. We are like that car battery. Left to our own efforts, we cannot run with the purpose that God has given us. Because we don't truly know the purpose. But when he comes in and we allow to be re and receive his love, it's only then that we can then function with the correct purpose. We're to love, and that purpose is to love God with, our, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's just like 712. This is the summary of all the commandments that Jesus gives. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. When we understand our purpose, we can properly function and properly care for others. So understanding your purpose, we also need to understand our need. And then our need is, is evident. We live in a broken world. I mean, it is messed up. There is murder, there's pain, there's suffering, there's cancer, there's death, there's temptations. And it, it's just broken. But not only that, not only is our world broken, but we're broken. You know, because our vertical relationship with God is sometimes messed up. Uh, our horizontal relationships with others, too, is broken. Right? I mean... I don't know about you in the time of confession, but there's so many things, so many ways we can, we can um, sin. It's to lie against our neighbor, to covet, to manipulate. We take advantage. Our attitude towards God is wrong. We love ourselves in an unhealthy way because often we only think of ourselves. And it's when we realize we can't uh, keep God's law perfectly, we must ask him for his mercy. So what are some of the ways that we have an unhealthy self-love? Right, we can ignore God, uh, think we don't really need him, or maybe feel like we need to be autonomous. It's all about us. And if we have a problem in our life, then it's about, well, you just need to, you know, fix it. What you need is a, maybe a, a book to help you or uh, some knowledge or key uh, way of implementing something to change your life. Uh, this reminds me, I'm going to age myself in, in this illustration, but this reminds me of a Saturday Night Live clip with Stuart Smalley. Have you ever seen it? Stuart Smalley, played by Al Franken. He's the show host with um, really low self-esteem. And before every show, he starts the show with saying, I'm going to have a good show. And, and he looks in the mirror and he says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he goes to the show, well, then his guest that he brings on is Michael Jordan. <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, Michael Jordan, he's doing fine in the confidence area. But here is Stuart Smalley saying, hey, look into the mirror, Michael. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and people like you. And I feel like often we try to, to give ourselves that pep talk to say, listen, if, 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 I, am, uh, if I, I don't really need a need, uh, what I really need is just 
the right words to make things better. I just need the right process to make it better. But the problem is we deceive ourselves and realize that we actually do have an issue. We are broken and we have a need. And it's when we realize um, that we have a need, that's when we really can uh, realize how much we're loved. In Luke 7, Jesus is reclining at uh, a table at a Pharisee's house and there's a woman of the city that comes in, a, a, a prostitute. And she brings an alabaster flask of ointment. And she weeps. And with the tears, she wets Jesus' feet and begins, begins to uh, clean his feet off with her hair. And anoint him with the ointment. And the Pharisees are just livid. And they, they see this and they say, well, if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman uh, this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. But Jesus, teaching them, answered him and saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. And he says, a certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I enter your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven, who has forgiven little loves little. Have you felt apathetic towards God? Lately, maybe even today when you walked in, you said, do I really want to be here? I encourage you, if that's you, to spend time thinking about God's forgiveness in your life. That confession is such a strong time in the service because the time where we can actually feel the weightiness of our sins because we are in the presence of the Lord and yet he still loves us. He has not rejected us. And this you can understand how much you are forgiven, it will drive you to love God more. A healthy self-love is not thinking you're good enough or strong enough by yourself, but knowing, number one, that you were created for a purpose, and that purpose is to receive his love. And secondly, you desperately need a savior because you are not good enough on your own. We are to love by understanding the supreme love of our Father, and to love with a healthy self-love. And lastly, we're to love with an others-centered love. Now, how do we love others? Well, how do you love others? I, I fail as a pastor today. If you leave and you say, yes, I agree with the golden rule. That is a great rule. Marvelous. It's wonderful. And what a perfect summary of the law and prophets that Jesus gave in that one verse. But having praised that word, you don't actually implement it in your life. You praise, but you don't practice. The Lord preached the Sermon on the Mount, not so you and I can comment on it, but so you and I can carry it out. Later in chapter 7, Jesus says, The man who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But whoever hears them and doesn't do them is like a foolish person building house on sand. So why don't people put these words into practice? Well, we've talked about that. We've covered it. There's, there's so much sin that's evident in our lives. You know, even more is laziness and apathy, maybe a lack of awareness or...
unwillingness to reach out. Well, all right, Casey, fine. How do we do it? How do we actually love others with an other-centered love? Well, there are many sorts of ways, but for me, I'd like to focus on just a couple. One is that we do it with empathy, all right? With empathy. Uh, the youth pastor at Christ Pres, Derek Harris, and I went to a nine-month cohort at Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, and um, the thing about the Fuller Youth Institute was they did this uh, study, and they took 260 churches, and they said, hey, we hear you do uh, ministry to the emerging adult uh, population. That's ages 15 through 29. We hear you do ministry to the emerging adults really well. C- can we figure out why? Can we, can we ask you some questions? Well, they took those 260 churches, and they ended up interviewing 60 churches that engaged uh, the next generation well. And of that 60, they ended up visiting 12. And they asked the question, what did these churches do successfully to engage the emerging generation? And they came up with six essential strategies to engage this generation. And what's odd enough is that it's not the things you would think, like the worship style or the cool programs or the great coffee or the church location. All these things had something to do with it, but, but even more greatly was one of the things was the church was successful if they as a congregation learn to empathize with today's young people. Now, how did they do that? How did they empathize? Well, the first thing was not by judging, not by criticizing differences, and not by um, giving more or less of a different type of worship service. What they did was instead they stepped into the shoes of that generation. You know, the three things that emerging adults want to Longing, where do I fit in in this world? And three, a purpose. What difference do I make? Identity, belonging, purpose. And the answers of those we seek, you know, are really that we're image bearers, that we're loved and accepted, and that we're part of God's mission. But those are the ways, those are the questions that the congregations actually stepped into the emerging adults' lives and said, let's do this together. Let's figure out these questions for you individually. Now, how can we empathize with those not like us? Uh, I went to a, a Q conference recently, and, and Christian rapper Lecrae was uh, discussing how best to be understood as a black male in society. And uh, his encouragement was this, to sit down and have dinner with someone not like you. Ask them to tell you what it's like, what their experiences are like. Not to make judgments, but to listen, to reflect, to engage to not be scared of that, but actually step in. And when we do that, we can do that for all people groups. But when we do that, we can learn to empathize with them. What is it like being like you? Help me understand. Help me learn. Help me grow. Help me empathize with you. And when we listen to those things, we then can know how they're feeling. And that allows us to actually learn how to love them the way they need to be loved. So we love others by practicing, not just praising the golden rule, by empathizing. And lastly, we can have an other-centered love by taking risks. Now, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to talk about Magic School Brus and uh, Mother Teresa in the same minute. Are you ready for this? That's the nice thing about being a children's pastor. You can do this. So Magic School Bus, I have uh, four kids, five and under. I live this world. And there's a, uh, uh, it's a cartoon that has a magic school bus, and there's a teacher named Miss Frizzle. 
Has anyone, can I get an amen if anyone has seen this? All right. A lot of hands. All right, great. Well, Miss Frizzle is this teacher, uh, and what she does is she takes these kids on these adventures. And what she says is, take chances, make mistakes. Anybody? Get messy. And the thing about this is, you know, what she says so well is that if we are really to love others well, we need to not be afraid of being wrong. Uh, Jesus loved his 12 disciples. He taught them, he cared for them, but even when he knew Judas Iscariot would betray him, yet he still loved him. It was still risky for him to do that. Jesus loved not as he would receive love back, but how he knew others needed to be loved. Now, the Mother Teresa part. Mother Teresa put a, a poem on a wall in her children's home in Calcutta, India, and it's entitled Anyway. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, the poem goes like this. People are unreasonable, illogical, self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good, you will be, uh, the good you do will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you have spent years building, it may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but they may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. God is calling us to love people with an other-centered love, not based on what it does to us, right? And it's not based on what, it, what the other people deserve. It's not based on their character that we love them. We love with an other-centered love based on the character of our Father. It's about who he is, not who we are and not who they are. Everything is based off this vertical relationship. So this golden rule, we are to treat others and love others the way we would want to be treated. And how do we do this? By knowing that we are loved with a supreme love. When we experience his love, right? When we have a healthy self-love by knowing our purpose and our need. And when we love others with an other-centered love by putting it into practice to empathize, to take risks. Because ultimately, and lastly, I'll close with this, when we love others the way God's calling us to love, it ultimately will break us, right? Because we will get hurt. We will get messed with. And ultimately what that does is it brings us to the foot of the cross. That we don't have what it takes. In our own power, we don't have enough to love the people that we need to love the way they need to be loved. Because we need Christ to love them. We need to rely on him. We need to know we are loved. And only then can we love. And also, it helps us both see our need and also long for him. When things get tough, for us to say, man, I need to love this person. They are not lovely, but I know the Lord is. I need to love them. Lord Jesus, help me. And it makes us long for him. When you love others, you will love God more. When you love others, you will notice this sense of empowerment, this sensation of this outside power that is working through you because it is not uh, up to you because you are not able to love others the way they need to be loved. Only in Christ 
can you love others that way? And he teaches you how to do that. And he gives us a model for loving the way that others need to be loved. At this table, as we approach the Lord's Supper, it's a beautiful picture of Christ's love for us. Christ showed his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and that's how we can see it at this table. And as we approach the Lord's table, I want to invite the ushers to come forward. And um, the dismissers will be here and they'll dismiss you uh, at the rows. And we'll form a, a semicircle on each uh, side of uh, the sanctuary. And the Lord's Supper, I should have you know, is for those of you who are imperfectly made, who see your need as greater than you have the ability to give. And those who would surrender their lives to Christ and say, I need this love. If you're trusting in your own way, your own strength, I encourage you not to take the supper. Or if, you're, if you wouldn't call Jesus uh, your Lord and Savior, but you're interested in learning more, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But use this time to consider how Jesus loves you and how he calls us to love other people. So if you would, please stand and look um, to the screen.